The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockio Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We're glad that you decided to join us on this second hour. In the first hour, we were giving a brief historical overview of the Negro Leagues. I wouldn't even say it was brief. That was so in-depth. Well, I had a whole lot more to go. <laughs> I didn't want to go too deep. You just ran out of time or ran out of paper? I ran out of time, but I did not want to usurp our guest who's on the phone, Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's from the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Ray, welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you on today. I'm glad that you were able to take some time to talk to us about some of the events that are going on up there this year in preparation for the 100th anniversary. And we want to be able to ask you questions to help enlighten us more about the Negro League and also about the Negro League Baseball Museum, okay? Glad to do it. But first of all, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in all of this history that is not well-known, but I think is going to be becoming more well-known. Well, thank you. I, I don't consider myself a baseball expert or a Negro Leagues expert per se, but I am from St. Louis, East St. Louis Senior High School, class of 87. All right. Uh, <laughs> and when you're from St. Louis, you, baseball touches your soul, maybe more so than any other community in the country. So I've always had an interest, but my primary training is that I'm an educator. I actually taught briefly at Webster Girls High School. In All right. Seriously. Uh, in the St. Louis area right after college, but right after college, too, I had an opportunity to learn about graduate work in what we call public history or, in my case, museum management or historic resources management. So I, I got an opportunity to go uh, after a year teaching at Webster Groves, got a chance to go to California, the University of California in Riverside, to get a history master's degree and to learn about museum studies, to learn about historic preservation and archival work. Uh, and through that work, I, you have to do an internship. And that's when I first learned about the museum project here in Kansas City to, to preserve the Negro Leagues. They weren't ready to hire anyone then at the time. They were just getting started, but I found an internship at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. instead. And after completing that, I was done with graduate school, and I wrote back to the Baseball Museum Project and said, well, I'm looking for a job. And it says, well, we're looking for a curator. And so they interviewed me, and I was hired back in 1995. I've been here ever since working in various projects, but having various titles, and now I'm vice president and curator for the museum. You've been there since 1995? Yep. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that, like that is, that's amazing. That's a, that's a trivia question right there. <laughs> Ray, Ray what, was the, what was the impetus of you not leaving Webster Groves High School, but going into the museum conservation and curatorship portion of that? Thank you. For one of the great opportunities when I did go to graduate school was that I left out an important part is that before that, after college, I got an internship in California as well before going back to graduate work. And that internship introduced me to this idea of public history. I had trained to be an educator and I'm fortunate to have gotten that opportunity. So that summer before joining Webster Groves, I was in California and learned about the opportunity to, you know, obviously you can be a historian and, and get the master's degree and 
you know, research various history, and I was actually someone who had studied jazz music and work songs and, and slave work songs and things in African-American history. And even though I had a love for baseball, I never thought of researching baseball, but no, let alone the thought of working in a museum or in a public history setting. But that internship dealt with historic preservation, so that opened my eyes to the possibility of taking my education degree and doing something a little different with it. And so when the opportunity came to go back to California, I was able to take that and get into the program. Uh, and it's been very rewarding. I, I say, I still think of myself as a history teacher, it's just that with the museum, I've got this giant pop-up book. I've got all this show-and-tell like <laughs> artifacts and photographs and and all these wonderful people that I've had an opportunity to meet. That includes uh, baseball players, some famous, some infamous, and, and as well as celebrities and politicians and folk who come through the door. You honestly never know who's going to come through the door. I just, before getting on the phone with you, just gave a tour to two very young men who are in town uh, for the uh, PBR rodeo. Uh, these are very young bull riders, and they wanted to come. Athletes, one from Texas, African-American young man, and the other one's from Mexico, who spoke very little English. But he wanted to come and see the baseball museum, and I just gave them a tour. So you can chalk them up with, along with presidents and first ladies and movie stars and others who've come through the museum. Wow. I, I bet the, that the gentleman from Mexico was probably overwhelmed with the amount of material and information because baseball is very big in Mexico. It is, and it's important to this history as well. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that the Negro Leagues were the highest level of professional baseball in the United States available to both African-American and Afro-Latino athletes at that time between 1920 and 1960. So if you were especially, say, a dark-skinned person from Cuba, uh, you were considered black and you had to play in the Negro Leagues, whereas there were what you might call white Cubans, and some of them played in Major League Baseball. Okay. Uh, so there was racism in that way. Yet the leagues were here for those athletes to have an opportunity to earn money and to play. So it, that's a very important point, especially in the context of discussing baseball today with the large numbers of Latino players in Major League Baseball and what like, we consider relatively smaller numbers of American-born, African-American players in baseball. I think the Latino population is well over 20%, whereas African-American players is covered between 75 to 10% for the last decade or so. Oh, wow. Okay. Even though those numbers are improving. Now, even back in the early days of baseball, I would imagine that players were still considered to be more highly paid than other people. Would that be the case? That is true. And, of course, the the salaries pale in comparison to today. But it was noted in the popular Ken Burns documentary uh, on baseball a few years ago that your average baseball player, black or white, generally made two to four times more than the average worker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, but that, but that, And if you were really good, black or white, you could not only play baseball in the United States, but you could also go to, say, California in the wintertime and play in the California Winter Leagues or go to Mexico uh, and play in the Mexican uh, Winter Leagues or even when we could travel to Cuba more freely to play baseball in Cuba and eventually the Dominican and in Puerto Rico and places like that. You could end up playing baseball all year round with maybe just a few weeks off and come back to the United States getting ready for this, the uh, spring and summer season. 
That's really interesting because, you know, when you think about sports and sports being such a unifying uh, activity today, to realize that from the very beginning, baseball was a unifying sport, even though you may have had the Negro League, you may have had, you know, the Cubans League, whatever, you know, whatever they called them. But still, uh, the fact that people played together, they played the same sports, people were attracted to it, they were paid better than other players. I mean, all those things, you know, tend to shore up the importance of baseball in American history. And I think baseball remains important in that way. We hear about how perhaps football is now the new America's pastime, and I think that's yeah. hogwash. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Baseball is just so ingrained in our history from the standpoint of how it connects generations and really, in some respects, is more of a barometer of the times, I think, in reflecting how the country is. And that's just my opinion, but I admit that I'm biased in that way. Well, no, but I think that's right. real. No, I, because when you, look at, when you look at baseball and you see the number of children that are in the stands, people bringing their babies, you know, you see a lot of women, you see just a real good mix of people at baseball. That's a fair point. And I've had the good fortune through this work to be able to travel I've visited just about every baseball stadium in the country, oh. almost. There are a few exceptions. And you get to sit up and in the really good seats, right? <laughs> not always. <laughs> no. <laughs> not always. But just being at the ballpark is great. And you're, you're right. The, the opportunity for it to be much more of a family vibe is, is very important. And it's very important to the baseball teams to perpetuate that. And it's always, it's, for the most part, it has always been that way. I think with the exception of maybe the early years, I think even during the time of the Negro Leagues and in early Major League Baseball, baseball had a bit of a ruffian reputation, especially during the era, say, around 100 years ago, 99, 100 years ago, where gambling was really rampant uh, as far as uh, involvement in the game. Uh, but beyond that, as an experience, it's been perpetuated as a, a mostly family experience right. compared to other sports. And you see the players in a more gentle way, I think that you hear of the the teams doing more things in the community, you know, that they'll go and they'll go to community events, they'll be at community centers, you know, they're doing things that really involve young men and women, and, and giving them that sense of hope and that sense of, you know, you can do this too. Whereas a lot of times, I think in some of the sports, you, you don't really feel that you could really do it. I think that's fair. And um, and for the black player, it's it's very important to be seen uh, and to be visible in that way. And, of course, during the Negro Leagues, you, you had to be. In some cases, you were forced to be because you couldn't uh, integrate into the larger society. So you were part of the neighborhood. You were, as I often say, you were not segregated from the segregation. Uh, and so you were part of the community. People knew you. You were, in some cases, a celebrity in the community. And so it, it's great that when we have uh, African-American players, say, with the Cardinals and other teams, uh, and they get out in the community with the young people, get involved with the uh, different boys and girls clubs and, and, and groups like that, it, it does mean something. It's an impact to see yourself. And I'm always <clears throat> encouraged when we have young people of color come to the baseball museum because then they can see themselves as well. 
they can see at a time, there was a time when not only were we players in this game, we were owners of this game, we were investors of this game, and we were fans of this game, and that can be the same way again. That's a really important point that you made, Ray, that it helps kids identify and know that there are people who have gone before them, so they wouldn't necessarily be the first. There are some role models to look up to. You know, that's a that's a huge thing. And one thing too, I think, was really important that that Ray just said is that that blacks were investors. You know, I think that's a really really important point. You know, to say that black people put their money into the sport. They were owners. They were investors. They were players. They were managers. They were the things that you would say in in a well run organization and well-run community well-run country that it should be that way you know and people should be able to look up and see themselves in all different aspects of business indeed although we had hoped though and i think even those who were involved with the negro leagues had hoped that they could move more seamlessly into major league baseball at the same levels and unfortunately that didn't happen at least in a as robust a way i think though the players and eventually coaches certainly proved themselves very early on. You had a number of great players, obviously, who helped to integrate baseball. In addition, uh, that led to a number of coaches and scouts getting opportunities to come into Major League Baseball and helping to mentor the young black players and Latino players as well, and many of them becoming world champions. We're talking to Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's the vice president and curator for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Ray, would you talk a little bit about the formation of the league in 1920 with Rube Foster and that meeting at the Paseo YMCA and give a little background about that and maybe some details that our listeners would not be aware of if they were just reading things off the Internet and and had not come to the museum or had listened to this broadcast? So what's important to understand is that baseball for the black community is a product of the Great Migration in the United States. African Americans moving across the country after slavery and after Reconstruction, moving from rural work to the urban centers around the country, including the South, but also leaving the South, following work, following jobs, ultimately following family for better opportunities in the Midwest and in the North and in the Northeast and other places. So they're migrating out of the South to places like Chicago, like St. Louis, like Kansas City, following the railroads and meatpacking jobs and, and other things. And so perhaps things weren't as quite as oppressive as they were in the South, but they still had to deal with really strong segregation in these new places. And yet, maybe more so uh, than they could in the South, still create these enclaves of culture and businesses. They had to take care of themselves. So they included businesses like churches and schools and grocery stores and ultimately banks. And among those businesses were baseball teams because that became a very important part of the leisure activity growing up along with the music and other culture that African Americans were able to develop in, in these places. Um, as I mentioned, Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Memphis, uh, all these places were very important to this history. So baseball is a business, and that's something that we have to always remind people. I mean, perhaps as young people, we would play baseball for free, and if we thought we could play professional baseball, we'd give our right arm to do that. But baseball is a business. 
and these people are trying to make money, and yet they're having fun doing it, admittedly, but it is a business first. And in creating little businesses like this, you had to have stability. So in the, the late 1800s, and especially in the early part of the last century, for those baseball businesses to survive, they had to. They were basically small little traveling circuses. You had to have advanced men to create a schedule for you. You'd schedule games along the way. Maybe it was black teams, maybe it was white teams. What they didn't have was the benefit of a league structure. And what do I mean by league? A group of teams agreeing to play common opponents on a schedule and perhaps determine a champion at the end of a designated season of games. All right. Before that, these were just independent teams booking games as they could, traveling across the country, hoping that they were able to get their games in, that weather wasn't going to be a hindrance, uh, that players weren't going to get injured. Uh, and, and the most stable teams were able to figure that out with a little luck and a little skill. But again, all of this was happening within a segregated America, segregated train travel, segregated hotels. Whoever could master this could last. Unfortunately, without the league structure and the stability of schedules that would you know, give you some sense of when you were going to have money and revenue and things like that, uh, teams would start, would fold very quickly, and you never had stability. Uh, so the push came from the black press, mostly the sports editors of papers like the St. Louis Argus, eventually, and the Chicago Defender, and the Kansas City Call newspapers, pushing the independent team owners to get some kind of league structure formed so that we can have stability. At the same time, you had a number of independent black teams also claiming that they were the champions, that they were the best team, and there was no way to prove it on the field in a, in a structured kind of way. So ultimately, uh, attempts organized by the, the, the press and others to try to get those main Midwestern team owners together in a meeting ultimately fell to Kansas City in February of 1920 at the YMCA building on the Paseo Boulevard, just recently renamed Martin Luther King Boulevard here mm -hmm. in Kansas City. And this was, was significant. It is a black segregated YMCA from the downtown white YMCA. And this, that building has its own unique history because the community raised the money to build it through a challenge grant. But they built the building, and, and it held meetings like this one. And they hammered out at that meeting the framework to create the Negro National League. And, again, that was February 20th. February 13th, 1920, as it was reported, over 99 years ago. And um, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of that next year. Andrew Foster, better known as Rube Foster, who was an outstanding ball player in his own right in his day, uh, was also, uh, at this point, uh, a business leader and owner of the teams out of Chicago, uh, the team out of Chicago, and he was named the league's first president, and then things just took off from there. That's you know that's an incredible story. That really is, and it shows again the involvement of community, because look at a whole community raised the money, working along with the challenge grant, but what they did changed everything about that sport. Now I'm going to ask you a semi personal question, and it's not a political question, but I'm asking your opinion in light of what you know about how. You know, Andrew Rube Foster organized this and what Ellie just said about the Paseo YMCA. Are we better off in communities now or are we worse off? How do you mean? I mean, 
it seems that communities back then, we had black investors, we had black businessmen, we had a community that was comprised of multifaceted business people, working people who lived together, who played together, who did things together. And then we see a breakup of communities based upon a variety of reasons, whether it be economic or whether it be expansion of a city. And you see communities break up. And then you see communities begin to crumble. You see decay of areas. And I've driven by the area where the museum is before, and it's not like several other areas of Kansas City, but you could say that about St. Louis. You know, you know that. You mm-hmm. could say that about any any urban city. You could say that about Chicago easily, Philadelphia. Are we better off as we are now, or were we better off then? I know we're retrospectively looking back, and maybe this isn't a fair question to ask, but, you know, no. you're a history guy. But I, I take your meaning, and, and no, I'm not an expert on this, but I will say that that is not a question that is unfamiliar to us because we're often asked similar questions. Uh, From a baseball perspective, as I noted earlier, we don't have as many African Americans playing baseball. And so will the ultimate demise of the Negro Leagues a positive or a negative for the black community? And one could argue, too, anecdotally, that the rise and fall of Negro Leagues coincided with the rise and fall of many urban core communities because it happened around the same time. And we're talking around between 1955 and 1960, and that's when you start to see some of these things to really start to spiral in many respects. And some have blamed integration uh, for that point, which I'm reluctant to blame integration per se, but of course integration poorly applied leads to such results. Right. Uh, and um, and I think that is really what has happened. But in the end, in the end, the Negro Leagues should never have existed in the first place. Never have existed in the first place. And this museum should never have existed in the first place. And that seems like an odd thing to say. But we should have been playing baseball together from the beginning. And it's because of racism and segregation that it happened in the first place. We're fortunate that we can tell this story because it did happen. But someone like Commissioner Faye Vincent, former Commissioner Faye Vincent, once wrote that we thank God for the Negro Leagues because what would have happened uh, had athletes such as Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and others who were young people back then did not have an outlet to go to to apply their talent for baseball. Maybe they would have excelled at football. Maybe we would never know their names. But it's because of the Negro Leagues that they had an opportunity to do that. But in the end, fairness is fairness. And the fact that these leagues existed uh, in the first place, in in essence, is a travesty uh, for our country. And we should always be pushing towards fairness. And even though getting to fairness has had severe growing pain, as, and all the things you highlighted as part of that, we should always be pushing toward that goal uh, of fairness and uh, equity. Well said. We're listening to Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's the vice president and curator for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, Ray, if you don't mind, we want to talk after our break about some of your traveling exhibits, what people will see when they walk into the museum if you have a little bit more time. Is that okay? Sounds good. All right. You're listening to Arnold Stricker and Ellie Wharton of Intune. This is KWRHLP. 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. 
Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking to Dr. Raymond Doswell. He's the vice president and curator of the Negro Lee's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And, you know, you, you raised a very interesting point, Arnold, as we were going out of the last segment about did segregation and integration help or hurt the Negro League? And Dr. Um, was very good about talking about that. And he was right in saying, you know what, it really never should have had to be that way. Right. Right. And I thought that was a very good point that you brought out because you're right. In a, in a great country, that should never have been an issue. It should have just been about talent and the ability to go out and entertain and provide for the community in a, in a meaningful way. But even that was, again, spoiled by the racism, the segregation and the things that have plagued this country and continue to plague this country. And it's very unfortunate. And baseball is baseball. And, and Ray, it's interesting. You grew up in St. Louis area. You're probably, hopefully you're still a Cardinals fan. You haven't switched. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, Ray, also, I don't know if you know, but this radio station is located in Webster Groves. I'm a Webster Groves oh, high school great. graduate. Excellent. I'm on the Webster Groves school board. That's right, exactly. We are Webster Groves. And exactly <laughs> what you were talking about was, was what happened right here in our own neighborhood because, you know, there was a black neighborhood, black section of town in Webster Groves that's historical. And then we were eventually integrated to where we could go to the high school and the, and the junior highs and everything in Upper Webster. But right here, we had that exact same thing as, you know, people died or moved away and gentrification happened. So many of the things that we held dear to us, the, the stores, the fire departments, the, you know, the local police departments that we had, even down to our own funeral homes. You know, we had mm-hmm. all those things right here. We did have baseball leagues and we did have those things here. And now, you know, none of those things exist for us. Well, again, Hopefully, then you're able to go and enjoy the Cardinals and and be part of the community in a broader sense without uh, respect to color in that regard. So, but I but I understand what you mean. The last time I was home in St. Louis, the last past summer, it was heartbreaking driving through Wellston, for example. Oh yes. Which for me, as a young person, the public library there was my solace. The Wellston Public Library branch went there every Saturday when I was when I was young and uh and that that whole area is pretty much devastated now it was a shame and I think too for the Negro Leagues I think there was a hope back when integration happened that you know that it would be a flood of players going over or even the whole team maybe getting a chance and there was even there were even legends of uh, owners like Bill Veck who uh St. Louis folks know from the St. Louis Browns, but before that was involved in baseball on the periphery, uh, was trying to maybe even recruit an entire black team to replace the Philadelphia Phillies at one point. That's one of the legends. But that didn't happen, and the integration of baseball was 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 good, but it was a slow process. Robinson comes in in 1947 to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and, it's still, and, and even though there were actually four other players that same year, including uh, Hank Thompson and Willard Brown, who uh, joined the St. Louis Browns that, later that summer. Correct. And our friends at the uh, at St. Louis Browns Historical Society can give you lots of information about that. Uh, but it still takes between 1947 and 1959 before every major league team at that time, which was about 16, to have at least one black or Afro-Latino 
player on their rosters. Twelve years. Robinson only plays ten of those years. He, so he doesn't even see full integration during his career. And yet, still, baseball is uh, exemplar in a way because this is this takes until 59. We're still, you know, in that time period. The end of that time period is when we see the actions in Birmingham with Dr. King and Rosa Parks and those others. So baseball likes to take credit for kicking off the civil rights movement in some way. That may be a bit of a stretch, but it's hard to deny that the successful impact that those players uh, playing in all these different urban communities certainly was something that was noticed by people around the country. There's, there's a linkage there, a definitive linkage for sure. Mm-hmm. If I walked into the Negro League Baseball Museum, what am I going to expect to see? And what kind of exhibits? Uh, is it interactive? Is it something I can do on my own? Are there tours or what are Describe for us, because we're just, you know, three hours and 45 minutes away, if you drive the speed limit, if there's no traffic <laughs> on 70. <laughs> and, and once they put that loop train in there, we can be there in 40 minutes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> indeed. So That's, it's just a little day trip. But, that uh, would be a great day trip, wouldn't it? What do people expect indeed, when they walk um, in? Indeed. A little, little baseball, a little barbecue, and you're set. That's right. But... Uh, when you come to the museum, what we hope that you will see is uh, you'll go back in time. You'll learn a time machine of, of baseball and nostalgia in many respects. It is a story that is based initially as far as its existence and injustice, but when you come, we hope that you feel the triumph of the story because it's, it's not presented, at least that's not our attempt to present it as a sad story. It's a story of resilience. It's a story of of people overcoming obstacles. It's a story of people really brokering their culture against oppression in many respects. And so when you come to the museum, uh, and let me just make this point too, that if you come today, we have, we're semi-interactive in that we have a few interactive exhibits and we have films, but we have hundreds of photographs of the history and artifacts related to the history. And we're in the process of making changes and updates to the photos as well as the content because we've been fortunate to be able to acquire more things, especially photographs, but it's photographs as what have survived this history the most. Uh, you will see baseball gloves and bats and things like that, but not a lot of that survived. Uh, the history, but we have some and some significant items as well. Uh, but you, it's set up on a timeline of African-American baseball history from the late 1800s through the 1960s. That timeline of photographs and things goes around a mock baseball diamond that we call the Field of Legends. And on the mock diamond, you have life-size bronze statues of key individuals uh, who were some of the more important players in African-American baseball history, many of them inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. The significance of that, though, is that we are not the Black Baseball Hall of Fame. We're not a Hall of Fame. We're not the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame. We don't induct anybody to be have their statue on the field. Uh, again, base, the Negro Leagues existed for sec- because of segregation and racism. We don't want a segregated Hall of Fame. And the National Baseball Hall of Fame does that, and they've honored those model statues, players, well, and then including others. I think there's almost 40 players from the Negro Leagues, as well as owners, that are honored in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, including the only woman inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, Ethel Manley, who was an owner of the Newark Eagles baseball team. Wow. Okay, here we have another trivia question. 
Because, see, Arnold's big on trivia questions. So today, his one trivia question was, what was the name of the white player who joined the Negro League? Which I never knew that there was a white player who had joined the Negro League. So, Yes, I, I know the answer. Although, there was, uh, depending on who you asked, there was more than one. Uh, so, <laughs> there's one notable one. Uh, should I give the answer? Yes, give the answer. Well, I think you're probably referring to Eddie Klepp. Correct. That's uh, right. In the 1940s. There were, though, and that was around 47, uh, when Eddie played with the Cleveland Buckeyes. I think he was from New Jersey. And uh, and Eddie, unfortunately, had some experiences in life and in baseball that weren't always positive. But he did play and he pitched. But he also, too, uh, for example, there's a story of him being in Birmingham with the Buckeyes, and they would not, the, the officials would not, city officials would not let him take the field with the team. And not only that, he had to sit in the stands to watch the game. They wouldn't allow him to play. It's Birmingham. And, 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 <laughs> and possibly, and I can't confirm this, but uh, possibly that not only did he have to sit in the stands, but they may have had segregated seating as well, so he was in the white section uh, of the stand. So those those things, you know, just insult upon insult. I mean, he just wanted to play baseball, and he got the opportunity. And it was a bit of a novelty stunt, admittedly, by the, by the Buckeyes, but still, he just wanted to play, and he had every right and opportunity to play. Uh, but it's just ironic that that would happen. Yeah, I should note that there were some other players, white players, after Eddie. They're less well-known. And what's important about that, too, and this is also a conundrum of this history, is that after Robinson in 47, and uh, as I said, the leagues didn't last much longer after that, although it was still a slow pace of integration. By 55, the league structures were starting to crumble, although there were independent teams continuing to go. And by 1960, the league structures, as we know it, uh, had folded. But even though that was a slow process of integration, as I mentioned, 12 years, but you had over 120 players make that leap into Major League Baseball. So by the, so you, there are probably a number of even former baseball Negro League players that are around today who were alive, uh, but they're a little bit younger. Uh, if they were really good, they would have probably got a chance to play Major League Baseball by this time. But that's not to diminish their story. It, it is what it is, but the best of the Negro Leagues was beginning to fade by 1950-1955. Ray, what are you guys doing to enhance things other than some more interactive kinds of things that you mentioned for the 100th anniversary upcoming? I know you're really kind of preparing for that to roll that red carpet out and have a big celebration next year. Well, in general terms, less so for the anniversary, but just because we needed to, this story of the integration of baseball is one that we're working on right now uh, because in recent years we've been able to acquire more photographs and artifacts related to that story. So if you come hopefully in the next uh, month or so uh, or after the next month or so, we will have finished that redo of just the section that we call the barrier breakers period. And that deals with 1945 to 1960. And so again, we've, we've gotten resources to help us, um, get more photos and more information. So that's going to have a new look. And then we're in the process of assessing if we want to add a new look to, to many other parts of the museum. A couple of interesting things to keep in mind is that we will celebrate the anniversary. We will do our our usual 
series of events. Uh, we have usually an annual event in association with the Kansas City Royals, which is a Negro Leagues tribute game where the teams wear replica uniforms of the Negro Leagues during that day. Uh, the Cardinals did it many years ago here. And I should point out, too, that the Cardinals support the museum with the Negro Leagues tribute in a smaller way, where they have a cap or T-shirt giveaway, and I think that's planned also for this year, this upcoming season in late June. I think they they haven't decided a date yet. Uh, but the Royals go all out with both teams wearing uniforms, and then fans are encouraged also to dress to the nines if they say they can come in their Sunday best, just as fans of the Negro Leagues used to do back in the day. And it's a big social event in the community. So we have events like that. We usually have a big November gala event every year, and that's going to happen as well for 2020. And where we can, we will add smaller events. But one of the primary goals is to really try to establish our endowment so that we can uh, keep the museum going for years to come. So you'll see a lot of activity, hopefully, that relates to corporate sponsorship and and philanthropic work that will allow us to uh, really perpetuate this history for years to come. Now, Ray, we've got about five minutes left. If Could you talk a little bit about the activities that you have educationally for students, for adults, and then uh, speak about some of the traveling exhibits that you have? Well, and, and the traveling exhibit program in particular is, is one that we're very proud of. Obviously, not everyone can come to Kansas City, so when we have the opportunity to get displays out, we do our best to do that. Uh, we have uh, two or three traveling exhibits that have gone all over the country. One in particular is called Shades of Greatness, and this is art inspired by Negro Leagues Baseball. It includes about 35 fine art pieces from artists, mostly regional artists here from the Kansas City area. We're fortunate to have a good cadre of African-American artists, but also a number of other artists who uh, work for a little company called Hallmark here. They, they tend to employ artists a lot. Uh, and so, uh, and, and some other national artists that we have relationships with, and they created this, this artwork after we talked in the history. That, uh, at one point, was at Portfolio Gallery uh, in St. Louis next to Powell Hall for a few months, a few years ago. We also have our basic History of the Negro Leagues exhibit called Discover Greatness, which is photographs of the history and a basic Negro Leagues 101, if you will. Both of these exhibits travel. Folks can rent them for their communities. And we have smaller exhibits, including uh, an exhibit called They Were All-Stars, which uh, aligns with understanding those former Negro League players who became went to the Major Leagues and became All-Stars on their All-Star team, uh, on Major League Baseball All-Star teams, uh, which was done in 2012 when the Royals hosted the Major League Baseball All-Star game. Uh, we like to have those exhibits out. Um, and here in Kansas City, we try to do temporary exhibits as well. And additional programming, we we obviously welcome thousands of school children each year. Uh, we try to do literacy programs, a program called Reading Around the Basis. When possible, we can give free books to children and hopefully have celebrities or important people in community read those books to them on our Field of Legends exhibit. We have a program called Baseball Book Notes, which is just an author series, occasional author series, where we can have authors who are writing different books on baseball come in and talk to different audiences. One other unique event that we like to do when possible is called Black Women in Sports. And obviously, there aren't many women playing baseball today, although there were women in the Negro Leagues. Here's another trivia question. I read that. Uh, okay. Another, uh, well, we're, we're just getting all of our trivia questions today, aren't we? <laughs> 
but when possible, we try, especially around March or Women's History Month or whenever we can, have notable either female athletes, journalists, or, or leaders come in and talk about uh, leadership and their connections to sport. So those are just a, a sampling of some of the things that we try to do. And we're also fortunate we're, we're developing a new relationship here our neighbors to the north, our new neighbors to the north, is the Kansas City Urban Youth Academy, which is a, a baseball academy built by Major League Baseball and the Kansas City Royals and Kansas City Parks and Recreation. And they're welcoming hundreds of young people for baseball and softball there. And we're doing an outreach with them that whenever families and ball players come to play at the complex, which has two major league-sized ball fields, a little league field, and a softball, collegiate softball field, that they can come to the museum and take tours and learn about the history. I am amazed at the work that you are doing and the board and the rest of the staff are doing at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And folks, we've been talking to Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's vice president and curator of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And Ray, it's it's really a privilege to talk to you, to hear all the things that are going on. It sounds like you have really found your niche in uh, baseball. It could have been something else, but you know, why not baseball? And, <laughs> That's right. And, and, you, and how you have really experienced the things growing up and how things have all kind of moved together to put you in this position to really promote baseball and promote how people can actually get along even in spite of differences we talk about this on our show there's more that unites us than divides us and those are the things that we need to highlight yeah yeah indeed indeed and thank you for that and uh, yes it's it's been rewarding work it's taken me all over the country i've learned a lot uh met some very interesting people and have had great opportunities like this one to talk to you and your audiences and like i uh, told you when you contacted me anytime I can get on with the hometown I try to do that and and we encourage folks to come visit us we encourage folks to certainly if you can't come visit us contribute to the mission if you can we have memberships you can join us on Facebook uh, we have our website which is nlbm.com to learn about activities and events sometimes those especially on the Facebook page we, we try to note events that are happening across the country that uh, we're not even involved with but if you want to enjoy Negro Leagues history while you're out traveling and things like that, look us up, and we'll be glad to have you here. And, of course, when the Cardinals come to town, it's always red in the museum. So uh, <laughs> come check it out. Well, you know, this is it's such interesting because last week when Arnold told me that he was going to have you on the show and he was giving me a, a, some highlights, I said to him, Road trip! <laughs> I think we could get some folks together who are our loyal listeners out in listener land here and and sure. make it make it a day you know and come down and actually be a part of all of those things that are happening there and then we broadcast live from there how would that sound yeah, we've done it you can do it we would be glad to have you well we're going to plan for something like that for next year when when should we come down again well, I, we can talk about it, but Black History Month is an interesting time to come, and uh, certainly spring when baseball season starts, and usually when the Negro League tributes happen, that's usually in May or June, but maybe let's look at the calendar when the schedule comes out, when the Cardinals are here, that may be a good time to come. Ooh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Dr. Raymond Doswell, Vice President and Curator of the Negro League's Baseball Museum. Ray, thank you for joining us on Into Today. We really appreciate it, and hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for the opportunity.